Um, if you're using one of the Bibles that we have provided for you, um, we're going to be on page 974, I believe, if you brought your own Bible. But we'd love for you to have that in front of you this morning. I also want to just give you permission um, to go digital. If you want to use a phone or an iPad or a Kindle or something this morning, we're, we're all about going digital. We would just love for you to have the Word of God in front of you this morning. And so we're going to start a brand new series uh, this morning called Family Vacation. Uh, we've had a couple questions about the series. The first one is, because uh, my family and I do own a minivan, is this your minivan? And the answer is no. As you'll notice, there are cats on that sticker. It's not mine. See, that was easy. That was easy to figure out. But hey, before we jump in this morning, uh, would you join me? Let's pray one more time and just ask uh, for God to show up and do something significant among us. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we do come before you this morning, and God, we thank you that your love never fails. God, I thank you that you are a God who pursues us relentlessly and that you never give up on us. In fact, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, who would die on the cross for our sins and raised three days later so that we could have life and righteousness and freedom. God, as we come before you this morning, we we seek you. And so we do ask that you would show up. God, I pray among all things as we open your word this morning, I pray that your voice would be heard, that your truth would rule in this place, and that we would respond to you in a way that would glorify you as our Heavenly Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series called Family Vacation because it seems like maybe, I'll say this and it'll probably snow tomorrow, but spring is here. It feels like anyway that the spring is here. The weather's been at least kind of nice for 48 hours, and I don't know about you, but I've, I've mowed my yard already once, so we've had one grass cutting, so in my world... Spring has begun, and this amazing thing happened. I mowed my yard, and it was beautiful and perfect. And then I woke up the next morning, and I bet I have over a million dandelions growing. And so I'm selling those as fresh flowers. And so we're snipping them and selling them. We have a little stand if you're interested. Um, But, you know, spring is here. In fact, uh, many people, just many students just had a prom this week. In fact, if you talk to uh, students, they have the official countdown to the end of school coming up. In fact, many of our students end school the last week of May, and if you're a parent, uh, you probably have that countdown going because you, you kids will be home from school this summer and trying to figure out uh, what that looks like for you. But for many people, as we get close to summer, what people start to think about is vacation. In fact, summer is kind of that time in our culture where we get away from it all, we get out of the, the daily grind, and we go to different places and, and do different things that we would like to do. And, and really, Vacations are those times that we take journeys, uh, maybe to go see other places or see uh, other uh, people, and we go to those places because we want to experience some rest, some relaxation, and some rejuvenation. I mean, that's really the point of a good vacation, right? To get away, take a little bit of a journey with the purpose of rest, relaxation, and some rejuvenation. And it's kind of like the great prophet Jimmy Buffett said, a change in latitude means a change in attitude. And so for many of us, we've already geared up. For many of you, you already know your vacation plans. Some of you are still trying to figure that out. But how many, how many of you are gearing up to take vacation the next couple months? Okay, go ahead. We got some people. How many, how many of you are going to do outdoor stuff, going fishing, that kind of stuff? There we go. Cool. Uh, how many of you are going to go see some family this summer? Go see some family? Okay. Most of my family lives right around here, so I can do that anytime. Going to see some family. How many of you are going to get out of town? I mean, you're, you're going on a journey. Okay. Journey to a new place. Anybody going somewhere totally new you've never been before this summer? A few adventurous folks, okay. Any of you going to a place you've already been before, you just really like to go there, so you're going again. Anybody doing that? Okay, quite a few people. See, vacations are, are really, really awesome. And in fact, I love taking vacations with my family, kind of these strategic, intentional times that we can get out of town and do something as a family together to make some memories and get away and get in a whole lot of rest relaxation and rejuvenation. And so that's why we're starting this whole sermon series is because for the next four weeks at Meadowland Church, my hope is, is that you and I together as a church, that we could take this journey together that might take our families to a new destination where maybe we could begin to experience a little bit more rest, a little bit more relaxation, and a little bit more rejuvenation within our homes and within our families. In fact, I think every single one of us, as we approach summer, can really make one or two decisions when it comes to our families. We can t- decide to take a break from our families, and I think there's all kinds of people that do that, that 
kids go off to summer camp and we get over-programmed and we go here and we go there and we just try to stay so busy that we survive the summer. I think you could do that. I think you could take a break from your family this summer. Or you could choose to make the decision to break free from the things that are hindering your family. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting about tourism in the United States is tourism is huge. Like I, I knew people traveled, but as we were getting ready for this message, we did some research, and according to Wikipedia, in the U.S., tourism is the first, second, or third largest employer in 29 states. Just in case you didn't get that geography class, we have 50 states, so that's over half of the states in the United States. The third, the biggest employer, either first, second, or third employer in many states is tourism. And in fact, it employed 7.3 million people in 2004 and took care of 1.1 billion trips um, in the U.S. in 2005. I, I mean, I just it kind of blew my mind. I didn't realize tourism was that big. In fact, uh, a little bit more recent of a stat is that in February 2013, there was $10.9 billion spent on people who internationally came to visit the U.S. The tourism is huge. And the reason that tourism is huge is because we're people who like to take vacations. We like to go places and see people and experience things. And I think every single one of us is looking for a little bit of rest, a little bit of relaxation, and some rejuvenation in our lives. In fact, I think one of the reasons that tourism is such a big business is because the reality is, is raising a family is difficult and it's hard. And we get to these seasons in our lives, we get to seasons in our culture where we go, hey, it's time for us to get out of here, get away from the daily grind, get out of our routine, and seek some rest, seek some relaxation, and get rejuvenated in our lives. And my hope is, is over the next couple weeks, we can do that together here as a church, that we could take a journey in God's word together, that we would allow God to speak to our hearts, that we would respond to him, that maybe we would get to a new destination in our families. And maybe as we allow God to work in us, Maybe that would cause us to find rest in him. And maybe we could begin to relax as we trust him. And maybe as his Holy Spirit works in us, it would rejuvenate us. Now, every now and then when we start one of these really specific family-type series, somebody would ask, man, this seems like such a specific thing. Is this really a sermon series for everybody? Can everybody get something out of this thing? And my answer is yes, because here's, here's what I think. Every single one of us is in some way, shape, or form in a family And every single one of us has some sort of hope, some sort of dream, or some sort of desire or goals for those families. So for instance, if you were, whatever family you were born into, my guess would be is that you have some hopes for that family. You have some dreams for that family. You have some desires for that family. If you're a single person and one day you want to get married and start a family, my guess is that you have some hopes and some dreams and some desires about what that family would look like and what you would be able to do there. If you're raising a family right now, I know that you have hopes and dreams and aspirations and desires for that family. Uh, Maybe you're at a point where your kids are now raising their kids. And my guess would be is that you have hopes and dreams and desires about that family and how you would play a role in that family. In fact, all of us are part of a church family. And if you're here today, my guess would be is that you have hopes and dreams and desires of what the church family would look like to you and how that whole thing would play out and what those relationships would look like. And so I would say that every single one of us can learn something from this series because all of us are somehow involved in a family. Whether it's the family we're born into, the family we want to start one day, the family we're in right now, or the family that our kids are now starting and we get to participate in. Or, or maybe it's your first week here at Meadowland Church, or newer visiting, and you're thinking, do I want to make this place? Do I want to make these people my family? We're so glad you're here, and we hope that we could walk that journey together. But one of the things that's so interesting about families is whenever I have conversations with people, it seems like it's a pretty easy landing spot for conversation. And so usually if I meet somebody new, I want to ask them some pretty simple questions so we can kind of get a conversation started. Uh, For me, the first question is always, what's your name? Okay, and this is probably important, especially if maybe you've been here for a couple weeks. If I come up to you and I say, hey, what's your name? Here's the thing. I probably have a guess, but I don't want to be wrong because I feel like a fool when I call people the wrong name. So, like, if your name is Steve and I start calling you Stan, it embarrasses me. And I kick myself about it for days. So rather than calling you the wrong name, I'd go, you know what? 
can you just tell me your name again? Because I just don't want to call you the wrong name. And I do it all the time. In fact, I try to ask our staff one time, I'm like, hey, tell me again, what's that person's name? Because I just don't want to call them the wrong name. So if I'm out in public, like, listen, if you ever see me talk to somebody that I don't recognize, I'm like, hey, you, you, it's good to see you because you can never go wrong with you. I mean, that's a pretty, but, but so if I'm starting a new conversation with somebody, I'll say, hey, tell me what's your name. And then I'll probably ask them something like, hey, tell me something about yourself. Like, what do you do? And then odds are, I would say, tell me about your family. And what's interesting is that family one's a pretty easy one to get to, and it depends. You know, now, now we live in a, a technological age where people can pull out their phone, and they're like, there's my first child, there's my second child, there's my third child. Here's like a whole family shot, and they turn their phone sideways, and, and just in an instant, you can get to know them and their family. But what's really interesting is I have conversations with people, maybe because I'm a pastor, maybe just because God leads me in these conversations, is usually... When I have conversations with people about their families, is, is all of a sudden they begin to reveal a, some stuff about themselves. They begin to reveal some stuff about their families. And so hey, it's not uncommon to ask somebody, hey, tell me your name, tell me what you do, and tell me about your family. And all of a sudden we'll start talking about families. And somebody would make a, a statement like this, like, oh, man, absolutely my family. But, man, I just feel like my kids fight all the time. Like, man, my kids are always after one another. I just wish there was more peace in my home. And I'd be able to talk about that and go, yeah, you know, I've got two boys, and it seems like whatever the one has, the other one wants, and I get that. And, and sometimes people go, man, life is good, but we just, like, we're just so busy. It just seems like we're so overscheduled. It seems like we're always broke. Man, I wish there was more joy. I wish there was more joy in our family. Or sometimes people say, hey, isn't it weird how we become like our parents? And somebody go, you know, hey, I... My dad, growing up, was a screamer, and he, like the littlest thing, he'd start screaming. You know what's really crazy is now that I have my own kids, I find that I'm the one screaming all the time, and I just wish that I had more self-control. I wish I didn't lose my cool that fast. Or, or sometimes I'll even talk to people, and they'll say, like, you know, this weird thing has kind of happened in our family where I feel like we argue all the time. Like, it seems like we can have a conversation with one family member, and all of a sudden all of us are arguing about something. It feels like we're just kind of angry. I said, man, I wish we had more love. I wish there was a little bit more kindness. I wish there was just a little bit more self-control. I see, whenever I have these conversations with people, it's actually kind of encouraging to me because we're talking about things that are, that are possible. I mean, we're talking about characteristics that are tangible that can actually come about in your life, in my life. That every time I hear somebody say, man, I wish there was a little bit more peace, that's possible. Somebody says, man, I wish there was just a little bit more love. I go, look, we can make that happen. Like, I wish there was just more self-control. I wish there was more patience. I wish there was just more of that in my life. I go, listen, all of that was in within your reach. All of that is possible. Now, here's, here's the thing that you have to understand about family. There's no such thing as the perfect family. No such thing. There's no such thing as a perfect family. There is such a thing as a perfect parent. That's the parent that hasn't had any kids yet. You ever met one of those? You ever had a conversation with that? We're like, well, I'll tell you. And you're like, oh, how many kids do you have? You're none. You're like, ha, ha, ha. And you know. You're like, it's going to change. But there's no such thing as a perfect family. The family that you were born into isn't perfect. The family that you dream of starting will not be perfect. The family that you're in right now is not perfect. The family that your kids are leading isn't perfect. The, the church that you're a part of isn't perfect. And here's the deal. This is just a big, huge truth, and you can embrace this one this morning. The reason that your relationships are not perfect is simply because you're involved in them. And the, release, the reason that my relationships aren't perfect is because I'm involved in them. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to just find a neighbor, look at your neighbor this morning and say, I'm the problem. Go ahead. Just go ahead. Look at your neighbor. I'm the problem. See, for some of you, the person you said that to has been waiting years, years for you to admit that, and today it happened, and they're, they're so thankful for that. Uh, but seriously, as we open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, Paul begins to talk about this very issue. Uh, Paul begins to talk about the idea of you and I experiencing more of God in our lives. And that as we begin to experience more of him, that there would be these characteristics by his grace, empowered by his Holy Spirit, that you and I would begin to experience in our personal lives. And if you and I would begin 
to experience this in our personal lives that would give us the opportunity to take these characteristics into all of our relationships, even including our marriages and including that with our children and our families. This is what Paul says, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. See, Paul says, listen, if you're looking for that, like if you're here this morning and you go, in my life or in my marriage or in my relationships, I need more of that list. Paul says, listen, that's available to you. Like that, that can happen. Now, now this is where this gets a little bit tricky because Paul says these characteristics don't just naturally come from you and come from me. I, I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, my very first response isn't to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, full of self-control. Like these, these characteristics, the reason we need more of them is because they don't naturally exist inside of us. That even on our best day, you and I are broken, sinful, selfish people. And see, the reason that our relationships are strained and the reasons our marriages get strained and the reason our families aren't exactly the way we thought they would be is because we bring that element into those relationships with us. And see, what Paul says is that you and I are actually part of the problem. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. We're going to back up a little bit. This is what he says. Now, this is a command. Paul is talking to believers here, and he's saying, listen, I want you to do something with this. Starting in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, here's, here's what Paul is talking about. When Paul says flesh, he's not talking about your skin. He's not saying that your literal, physical skin is evil and you should get rid of that. That would be a really bad idea. What Paul is saying is that inside every single one of us is these natural desires that he calls the flesh. And what he's saying is that every single one of us has a craving, has a desire, and has an appetite for sin. And what Paul says is our sinful nature, which he calls the flesh, desires more sin, that it's hungry for it, it's lustful for it, it wants some more of it. This is why you and I at times have desires or cravings for things that we know are bad for us, things that we know that will not be well for us, but we still think, man, maybe that would be good, or maybe that would be appealing. And Paul says our sin desire, which he calls the flesh, desires more sin. And he says, but there's tension inside of us. There's this cosmic conflict that dwells inside of us because just as much as we have a sinful nature that desires sin, Paul says we have the spirit in us and the spirit desires more of the spirit. In fact, the way to say that is that the spirit desires the things of God. And so we have this tension inside of us where on one hand there's this desire for things that we know aren't good for us, that would be sinful. That we also have this desire for the things of God in us. And Paul says there's this opposition inside of us that we can crave two completely different and opposite things at one time. And the very real truth is that inside every single one of us, inside of every single one of our relationships, Inside of every single one of our marriages and inside of every single one of our homes, this struggle exists. Now, here's what's interesting. There, there may be some of us here this morning who go, wait a minute, I, I'm a believer. Like, I've been saved by Jesus, and Scripture says the old is gone and the new has come, so I shouldn't have to wrestle with this anymore. Paul's not talking about me, and I go, he is. The book of Galatians is written to the church. Paul is talking to Christ followers here. And he's saying, listen, when you were saved, you received the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit craves the things of God. It wants more of God. But you still have this flesh, this natural desire that craves more sin. 
And you will experience a struggle inside of you. This is why, if you're a Christian, if you've been saved by Jesus, that the sins that you used to commit before you were a believer lost their appeal. That you were saved by Jesus, and all of a sudden you went to have that drink, or you went to do that thing, and you went, you know what, that doesn't really satisfy like it used to. In fact, there was a heaviness, wasn't there? A conviction. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe this isn't right for me. In fact, I think this is what Paul says when he says, you have these two things that are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Because just as much as that happened in you as you were saved by Jesus and there were some sin things that all of a sudden lost their power, that they lost their attractiveness. If we're completely honest, there's the exact opposite within us, isn't there? Then you go, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start waking up in the morning and reading my Bible. I'm going to get that quiet time with God. So I'm going to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'm just going to get in the Word of God. It's going to be awesome. And so you go to bed a little bit early, and you set the alarm clock, and 5 o'clock rolls around, and instantly there's a voice in your head, isn't there? It's too early. You're going to be tired all day. If you do this now, you're going to pay for it later. Hit the snooze button, hit the snooze button. And like you get the tenacity that you're going to get up. And you sit down maybe at the kitchen table or on the couch or something and you begin to open your Bible and you're like, I'm just not getting this. It's too early. I'm too tired. I know what I'll do. I'll pray. And you go, dear. And at 6.30 you wake up because everybody else in your house is up. And Paul goes, you know why that happens? Because there's two desires within you. One that desires sin And one that desires God. And these two will clash, and there will be friction, and there will be opposition to one another. Now Paul continues on, because here's Paul's idea, or his thesis. His idea is the Holy Spirit always wins. That if we give ourselves to Jesus, and if we follow the Spirit, the Spirit is triumphant and victorious, just like Jesus but he says there'll be some people who make the decision to follow the flesh. There'll be some people that go, hey, I feel the friction, and I'm going to go this way. I'm going to follow the earthly, fleshly desires. And this is what he says, starting in verse 18. He says, but if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, this is the point that Paul's making. He's saying, listen, listen, listen. You can't follow both at the same time. You cannot follow God actively and pursue your sin nature actively. Two different paths leading to two different destinations, motivated by two different things. And see, Paul, that's not a definite list. I think as Paul writes, he knows some things that are happening in some people's lives, and he's going, hey, by the way, just in case you're wondering, these things are not motivated by God. God does not desire for you to do these things, and he creates this list. And then he says this, And things like this. He's like, listen, there's more. And he's making the point to say, if you find yourself in these situations, you didn't follow Jesus there. Like if you find yourself experiencing those things, it's not because the Holy Spirit led you to those things. It was because you followed the flesh, which had evil desires that desired more sin. And see, Paul isn't saying if you're a believer and you sin, you lose out on the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you're probably not a believer if you're following that route. Because if you've so given yourself over, if your appetite is for the things of this world, if you want this stuff more than you want the spirit stuff, then maybe there's something going on inside of you that you would miss out on the kingdom of God. And the reason this is so important, the reason we have to hit on this is because Jesus' half-brother James, who I think is one of the most convincing people in Scripture, that Jesus really was the Messiah. Because seriously, what would it take for one of your siblings to say that you were God? 
And James, not until after Jesus' death and resurrection, goes, hey, I believe. Like, Listen, I was there. I saw him getting told to clean up his room just like the rest of us. I saw him get his driver's permit. He hit as many cones as we did. But then there was this whole death and resurrection thing. And now I believe. Like, I think there was something so incredibly different about my brother. And this is what James says in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. This is what Paul calls the flesh. That there's these desires inside of us. The desire is that when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Paul says you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. Every single one of us messes up. Every single one of us struggles with sin. But what Paul is saying here is, listen, be careful what path you're on. Be careful which way you're heading. Because you cannot follow Jesus to this destination. And Paul says the reason this is so important is because this will ultimately lead to your spiritual and your physical death. And isn't that what John, Jesus says in John 10.10? 10? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I have come that you may have life and life to the full. And then the very next thing he says is, but you have an enemy who is a thief. He has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. See, within every single one of us is this desire. Paul says you have to be very, very careful. Who are you following? Who's leading you? Which direction are you heading? Because you cannot follow Jesus and continue to be consumed and continue to pursue sin. Because ultimately, when sin is fully grown, it leads to death. Now, here's what's really interesting. Like, if we were to pass out communication cards right now and go, hey, who wants to sign up for that? Like, I don't think anybody in the room would be like, sign me up. I want a double pack. I don't think any of us wants that. I don't think any of us wants spiritual death. I don't think any of us wants physical death. I don't think any of us wants to see those things happen to the people that we love. And so the question we have to ask is, how do we respond then? Like, what do we do to make sure that we don't give ourselves over to these desires? What do we do to make sure that we're following the Spirit so that we can accomplish the fruit of the Spirit in our life? How do we say no to sin and say yes to Jesus? Well, here's what I want to give you. I want to give you two things that will not work. Two things that will not work. Because many people respond to this sin deal. Many people respond to this flesh struggle in two ways, and neither of them work. The first one is this, legalism. See, people go, listen, sin is real, and it is bad, and it is ugly, and it will kill you. So the way that we will combat sin is we will create rules, and we will have rules on top of rules on top of rules on top of rules, and if we'll follow the rules, we'll never even get close to sin. And so what we do is we boil down following Jesus into a list of ought and ought not tos. Do's, but do nots. And what happens is we get legalistic. And we begin to say things that are wrong that aren't really wrong, but we think if you go too far on them, then they'll become wrong. And so we create rules upon rules for our children, and we put a white picket fence around our house, and we teach our kids everything out there is bad, but everything is in here is good. And we tell our kids, like, our kids things like, hey, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't run with people that do. Because the insinuation is one of us is saved and the other isn't. But see, this is what happens. Within legalism, the foundation for the belief is the elevation of sin. See, the reason we do what we do is because sin is bad. The reason we do what we do is because sin will lead you to spiritual death. The reason we do what we do is because Satan is like a roaring lion who wants to devour you. So we elevate sin. And we begin to teach our families, we begin to teach our children that sin, that sin, that sin, that sin, that sin, that sin. And all this stuff is sin and you can't go anywhere near this stuff because it's all sin. And what we've taught them is everything there is to teach them about sin. But we haven't taught them anything about Jesus. 
And so what happens is one day they get out from under your roof and they go, Mom and Dad always said that's sin, but I have no idea why it's sin. In fact, it seems like it might be kind of fun. In fact, maybe the reason sin is bad is because maybe it's actually fun. And see, these kids grow up one day and move out from their parents' home and their entire belief system is we follow Jesus by adhering to the rules. And then the minute they want to not do one of the rules, their entire faith begins to fall apart. Because their Jesus was built on a foundation of rules. And see, I think what's better than teaching our kids all the rules, I think what's better than putting up the white picket fences, I think it's better for us to teach our children about Jesus. To elevate his name to reveal who he is and talk about his glory and his righteousness and his grace and his love and his salvation and his freedom. Because as we see him for who he is, as he is glorified, then the things of this world lose their appeal. The sins of this world are no longer appealing because we would know Jesus. I'm reminded of the refrain from the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. See, the reason that legalism doesn't work is because rules without relationship will always lead to rebellion. And one day, your children might not decide to follow your rules. Because rules without a relationship always lead to rebellion. So rather than being legalistic, we should just be passionate pursuers of Jesus and teach our kids about him so that they can love him and be loved by him. And I believe exactly what that hymn says, that is, he is exalted and that he is glorified, then the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. The second thing that people do, the second way people respond to this, is through what I would call lukewarmness. Uh, maybe the best way to talk about this is we see Jesus as fire insurance, Right? Like, I get all kinds of insurance policies because I bought a house. When I bought a house, the mortgage company required that I have house insurance. And so I had to do that. And so every now and then, like, every year I get some stuff from my insurance company reminding me of what my, my package looks like and what's covered and what's not covered. And I tend to do stupid things, so I do tend to read the what's not covered part because I just want to make sure I don't do those things. And so I, I read that, and then you know what I do with that when I'm done? I put it away. Because if you ever got one of those, you guys get the policy things, and right on the top of them, they say, this is not a bill, and you're like, awesome. You kind of put it away. For many people, this is our relationship with Jesus. They go, well, I went to church enough, and I think I said a prayer, and I went to a couple VBSs, and I own 26 Bibles that I never read. And so I think I'm saved enough. And so what we we do is we go, listen, I'm saved enough that I'm going to live as though one day I'm going to go to heaven. But until then, I'm going to have a hell of a good time. And I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to live as though Jesus doesn't exist. And my hope is that one day when I've done everything I've ever wanted to do and lived however I wanted to live, that one day I would stand before him, before he passed judgment, I could just pull out my insurance card and go, wait, wait, wait. Glad I brought this. I'm saved enough to get into heaven. Like I've been a lukewarm Christian And what Jesus says in the book of Revelation is that because we were neither hot nor cold, but because we were lukewarm, that he wants to spit us out of his mouth. That the Messiah, the Son of God, in Scripture literally says lukewarm Christianity makes him want to vomit. And yet people choose this response all the time. And the problem with this response, especially when it comes to families, is your kids see right through it. As they go, listen, why, why would we even live up this facade? 
Like, why do we even go to church? Why do we even pretend? Because we say we believe one thing, but we live a completely different way. And see, I don't know exactly how to tell you whether or not you're a lukewarm Christian. But here's questions that I ask myself. And these answers somehow tell me how I'm doing in my walk as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, in that order. Here's the questions I ask. When was the last time I prayed or prayed with my family? When was the last time I prayed or prayed with my family? Like if I personally get too many days in there, probably a little lukewarm. Probably not as hot as I could be. When was the last time we talked about Scripture? When was the last time we talked about Scripture? And listen, this is so hard. Like, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you a secret. I think, she's not in here so I can say this, I think Laura Thompson is probably the world's best children's ministry director. I mean, seriously, her love for Jesus and her love for kids is unparalleled in this universe. I believe that. And what will happen today, I promise you it will happen today, is we'll get home from church, and I get home later than the rest of my family, and I'll kind of sync up with them, and I'll look at Shane, and I'll say, Shane, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And I'll hear everything other than the lesson. I'll hear, well, me, me and this kid played, and we did this cool craft, and I'm like, yeah, but what did they teach you? I don't know. And then finally, because they sent all this stuff home, We'll, sit, we'll get to the point, well, did you learn this scripture verse? And it's so funny the way that we had this conversation not too long ago. We had this, yeah, we talked about Daniel. Do you know he got thrown in the lion's den? Like, yeah, there are like real lions in there, Dad. And he's like, is that what you talked about? Today? Yeah, Daniel's in there with real lions. I go, isn't it cool that God protected him and the lions didn't get him? And he was like, you know that story? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. He goes, but you weren't in my classroom. I'm like, well, it's in the Bible, buddy. And so we're, we're able to talk about it. And listen, I'm, I'm not always perfect on that stuff, okay? But when was the last time you were in Scripture? When was the last time you talked about Scripture? Uh, when was the last time you shared your faith with somebody? When was the last time you said, hey, by the way, I'm a Christian. I'd love to tell you what that means to me. How often do you and your family go to church together? How often? Because that question might answer something. Now, here's, here's the thing. Because here's what I say that. Here's what everybody assumes. Everybody in the room assumes that I love going to church because I'm a pastor. I'm like, well, that's an easy one for you. You've got to be here. It's kind of your job. But here's the thing. I loved going to church before I was ever a pastor. Like, my love for the church is what motivated, I think, the desire to be a pastor. When I was in high school and I was, just got saved, I was like the two-service guy. Like, our church had three services, and this is what I learned. First service was awesome, but the pastor had figured out what he really wanted to say by third service. And so I went to first service and got the rough notes. Then during second service, a group of us went out to, to breakfast together. And then we came back for third service and got, like, the full thing. And if you put first and third together, they were really good messages. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, if you wonder, that's the same true here. By first and second service, they're almost always different. And so I used to do that all the time. And then when I got married, Audrey and I were always going to church. And, and like, when we go on vacation, we try to go to church. Now, what's hard is sometimes there's churches that, like, say, you have to put your kids in the children's ministry. And my response is, if you can get them out of my wife's arms, you can have them. But you're probably not going to win that battle. Like, I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, we don't know you, and our kids are pretty important to us. And so, like, we're not to show up the first week, and we're like, here you go. Which answers the question, if you have kids in here, are we okay with it? Yeah. If it was my first week here, my kids would be here too. And, and I, it's just important because there's something significant about this. I mean, think about this for, for just, just a second. The reality is, and I get the best seat in the house here because I see everybody and you all have to look at me. So really, I get the best seat. But if you look at it, the reality, the reality of the church is that like, without Jesus, odds are that we wouldn't choose one another. Right? And yet, because we've been saved, somehow we come into this place, and because Jesus is our Lord, and because God is our Father, because we're his children, like, we can come together as a family. 
And, and Paul says in Scripture that, that somehow that with your gifts and with your talents and your abilities, with your strengths and with your weaknesses and, and mine and everybody else's, when we come together, Jesus is our head and, and somehow we're the best possible people that we can be when we function together and do life together as the body of Christ. And to me, that's significant. And to me, that's beautiful. And, and I know that when I'm unplugged from a local body of believers, I don't grow like I do when I'm with people. Because of the conversations and because of the relationships and because of the, the being together with one another. And I would just tell you, like, if you're kind of a once-a-month Christian, I bet if you got plugged in more, I bet you'd experience yourself growing more. Because there's something beautiful about this thing. Like, this thing wasn't our idea. This thing was Jesus' idea. And I've never met anyone who is growing spiritually significantly who is at the same time disconnected from a church. And so listen, how, how often do you go? Here, here's the last one. When was the last time you honored God with your finances? Like when was the last time you said, hey, this is more than just some talk, and this is more than just some belief, but this actually shows up because our treasure in our heart is connected. And see, here's the thing. However that answers it for you, it'll somehow reveal to you where you're at on that, but listen, Lukewarmness does not last for long. Lukewarmness is just a couple steps away from being ice cold. And I just think those are two things that do not work. So the million-dollar question is what works. The million-dollar question is what can we do about this whole thing? I think this is what Paul answers for us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And to those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. I think Paul says, listen, if you really want to see these characteristics in your life, then it starts with belonging to Jesus. And there's something significant that as we belong to Jesus and as we walk in his spirit, somehow we will experience the fruit of the spirit in our lives. Like notice Paul doesn't say get legalistic and create rules. He says don't just get kind of fired up and get lukewarm. He says, and to those who belong in Christ Jesus. See, that's important. Because Jesus tells us there's a day when he will stand before people and there will be people that come before him and say, but master, master, I knew you. And Jesus said, but I never knew you. And when Paul uses the language belong, that's what he's talking about. Do you belong to him? Would he say that you belong to him? Is he at the center when scripture says that he purchased you, that he gave his life for the ransom of you? Is that true, that you belong to him, that you are he, his and he is yours, and there's this knowing and this oneness and this belonging because it's to those that belong to him, when they walk by his spirit, they would experience the fruit of the spirit. Another way Paul says this is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is, I no longer, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, it's no longer about the flesh, but it's Christ who lives in me. And because it's about him and because He's in me because he gave himself for me. I am his. I belong to him. And if you were hearing, so what does it mean to belong in him? I I think it's the belief that, first of all, that you're a sinner. And I know that's not fun. And I also don't think it's cute, but it's true. Every single one of us sins. And because of that sin, We are guilty of deserving God's wrath in his judgment. And that's true. 
Like you and I do not deserve anything good from God. That's why grace is so important. Because when we talk about grace, what we're really talking about is that God treats us as though we do not deserve. <coughs> Excuse me. And according to Scripture, even though you and I are guilty, that you and I deserve death and that you and I deserve the wrath of God, that God would send his son Jesus, fully God, fully innocent, who would give himself up and die on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And that he would take the punishment that you and I deserve, and that he would die the death that you and I deserved. And that when he rose on the third day, that it was to give us life and victory and power and his righteousness. See, Scripture says if we believe all those things and we can repent of our sin and confess Jesus as Lord. Paul says that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he will be faithful, and that we will be saved. And see, it starts with this belonging because Paul's really hitting on this, and I think it's important to hit on that it's not only am I saved, but I belong to him. It's that he's the most important, that he receives the glory, that behind every decision that we make, how we spend our money, the question is, what glorifies Jesus the most? How we spend our time, what glorifies Jesus the most? As we're turning the channels on the TV, what glorifies Jesus the most? Is that guy cuts us off in traffic and this thing wants to happen where our hand goes up over our head and this finger comes out? What pleases Jesus the most? When we continually give him the glory and we continue to put him at the center. And then Paul says this, that not only do we need to belong to him, but we need to walk in the Spirit. So as we wrap it up today, I want to talk about what it looks like for us to walk in the Spirit. As we talk about walking in the Spirit, I think most of us have probably a false illustration of this in our heads. So it's like, what does it mean to follow the Spirit's leading in our lives? I think for many of us, we think we're behind the Spirit in life. And, and maybe the best way to think of it is, is the Indy 500, although I'm not a big NASCAR guy. That's a lot of left turns for me. But if you think about that, when they start the race, there's always a pace car. Now, I, I, I don't know this. I had to be told this. But the pace car is designed to have the ability to go faster than the race cars. Because for race cars to be approved to be on the track... They have certain rules and regulations, like the motor can only be so big, it can only have so much torque, and that way they're all the same. But the pace car doesn't have to follow those rules because the whole idea is that for it to be out in front of the other cars. And so for, I think for some of us, we think, maybe you've never thought of this way, but you thought elements of this is that, that we're kind of like the NASCAR, that no matter how fast we go, we can never really catch up with the pace car. And somehow by our might and our power, by our strength, we're doing our best to catch up to God, to catch up to his leading, to catch up to his presence, to catch up to his power, but he's always just kind of out of reach and ahead of us. I don't think that's what Paul is leading us to. And in fact, I think a better illustration would be one of a locomotive train. Now, growing up, I've got, I've got two boys, and they both enjoy Thomas, and so I have a lot of train knowledge that I have received through the Thomas and Trains industry, which I actually kind of enjoy. Anyway, so I think about a locomotive, I got words, man, that you've never heard before, but they came from Thomas. And, and what happens is in a locomotive, if you think about a locomotive train, there's the engine, and the engine's the one with all the power. It's the one with all the energy, all the momentum. It's, it's got everything it needs to move all the other cars. And see, when I think it comes to, to you and I walking with the Spirit, that's a better illustration. That when we belong to Jesus, we couple up with him. We hook up to him and say, listen, you're the power, you're driving, you've got the steam, you're the conductor to this thing. It's by your energy, it's by your momentum, it's by your power that you will move us, you will drag us, you will lead us to where you want us to go. When we get stubborn, you will shunt us back into place to become the people that you want us to be. But see, the whole thing is motivated by his power. You unhook the cars from a locomotive and those cars are going nowhere. But when we couple up and say, Jesus, we belong to you, 
and we're yours. And not only are we filled with your spirit, but we want to walk by your spirit. What does that look like? What I think that looks like is that we stop filling our lives with empty things, trying to fill ourselves up. But rather we fill ourselves with God. That rather than trying to fill the emptiness of our lives with tiny, unfulfilling things, we begin to find satisfaction in Jesus by making him the center. And in fact, I think walking in the Spirit really can be kind of narrowed down to three things I want to walk you through this morning. The first one is this, hearing. Hearing. The Bible is God's word for you and for me. When we open this thing up, Scripture testifies itself that The word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. That this is God-breathed material that we hear his voice. And listen, if you want to know God's will, you first have to know his voice. Like if you want to know where God's leading you, you first have to know God. And I'm telling you, so much of following Jesus is being able to hear him isn't that, what Je- isn't that what Jesus says about his sheep? I am their shepherd. They know my voice. That when I call, they respond. But when someone else calls, they go, it's not my shepherd's voice. And this is why all throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus say directly to those who are following him, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And you go, why? Why would he say that all the time? He goes, because you think this is the truth? But now I want to give you the truth. And you go, why would Jesus want to give them the truth, number two, so they could do it? So they could do it. That once we hear the word of God, we need to do what it says. That so much of following God and so much of following Jesus and so much of walking in the spirit is this divine relationship of hearing his voice and then doing what he says. And isn't that what Jesus says, right? They will know that you love me because you obey. Because you hear my voice and then you do it. The last one is this, it's believing. It's believing. That as we begin to hear his voice and see his truth and we begin to put it into practice, really what we're saying is, God, we believe in you. Like the reason we're going to do this thing, the reason we're willing to give this thing a shot, the reason we're going to try this is because we believe that you are who you say you are. That if we trust in you and if we do life the way you say to do life, you're glorified and somehow we're better for it. And so there's this hearing his word, doing his word, and believing his word. And as we begin to do that, I think God begins to work in us. I think the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. And maybe there'll be some of you here this morning who go, well, I, like, I don't know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm a Christ follower yet. I'm not sure if I buy into all this. And here, here's what I would suggest. Just start. Just start. Like, just start reading. And, and as you start reading, you could start applying things and go, listen, I'm going to give it a shot. Because here's the thing. This is at least as true as the newspaper you read. Like, this thing couldn't hurt you. And so if you began to go, hey, here's some stuff that Jesus says about money. Maybe I'll give that a try. Here, here's some stuff that Jesus says about forgiveness. Maybe I'll give that a try. Jesus says that I should love my enemies. Maybe I'd give that a try. And maybe, maybe, as you began to read his word and do his word, maybe believing would just start happening. Maybe you would see God for the very first time. Maybe you'd experience him like you've never experienced him. Or maybe for the first time, you would hear his Boys, because here's, here's what I truly believe, 100%. Every single one of us can have lives and relationships and marriages and families that are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But we will not get there on our own. 
it does not reside in us naturally. Which is why Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, is patience, is kindness, is goodness, is faithfulness, is gentleness, is self-control. And against these things, there is no law. Two questions to think about. Number one, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Number two, what are you building your family on? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. God, I do thank you again for who you are. God, I thank you that you would send us Jesus, who would save us from our sin, who would give us new life. And God, today we worship you for who you are. God, that we believe that you are the creator of the world. That just like scripture said, you spoke and everything came into existence. God, that we believe that you are the God who parted the waters so Moses and the Israelites could walk through, but Pharaoh and his men could not. God, we believe it was you who gave Elijah the power to overcome the prophets. God, we believe it was you who even turned water into blood to show a sign that you were real. God, that it was you who turned water into wine at a wedding, Jesus' first miracle. Lord, we believe that it was you that when Jesus was dead, that just like Scripture says, you rose him up with the very spirit that now resides in us. And God, if you can do all those things, God, we believe this morning that you can change our hearts, that you can change our minds, that you can change us, our marriages, and our families. So God, we ask that you do an incredible work. God, help us to respond to you and your word this morning in a way that would glorify you. God, for those of us who have been saved by you and know you as both Lord and Savior, God, help us not to be legalistic and help us not to be lukewarm. But God, help us to allow you to be the center of our lives, that we would be people who live for you and desire among all things to do the things that would please you the most. God, I pray that this morning as we gather together in this place that there may be someone here this morning that has never been saved by you. God, that they've never realized their sin and the wrath that they deserve. And today they realize the beauty of the gospel, that you would send your son Jesus so that none of us would perish. But because of his life and because of his death, because of his resurrection, we might be saved. God, I pray that you would open their hearts to love you this morning. God, that you would free up their tongues that they could call you Lord. That you would break open their hearts as they realize that they need you as a Savior. And we thank you, God, that your love never fails. Today, as we gather in this place, we know that you are God and that you are good. And I just want to give you all a chance this morning that in this moment of prayer, if you're here and you know that today's the day that you need to respond to Jesus. You want to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the Lord. If you want to repent of your sin, take that first step and belong to him. That's you this morning. I'm just going to ask you to look up at me. I want to be able to pray with you and walk that journey with you. Anybody that today's the day you need to give your life to Jesus, okay? Anybody else? For those that looked up, you could just pray this prayer, Jesus, today I give my life to you. I recognize my sin and believe that it separates me from you. It makes me deserving of your wrath. 
I also thank you for Jesus who would die on the cross and raise again on the third day so that I might have life, salvation, and freedom. Jesus, today, I repent of my sin. I no longer want to pursue sin. But Jesus, I confess you as both Lord and Savior. I ask you to forgive me and to save me of my sins. And today, I begin my journey walking in your word and walking in your truth for the rest of my life. And all God's people said,